would you turn, please, to the start of the book of Exodus? We're going to read the first chapter of Exodus, and then we're going to move over into Exodus chapter 5 for some verses as well. So this is Exodus chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them, to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew woman during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Turn over, please, to Exodus chapter 5. I'll say a little bit later on about what happens in those intervening chapters. But Hebrews, uh, sorry, Exodus 5, verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. 
Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you're stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You're no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they may keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants in this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. Amen. I want to do three things tonight as we begin to unpack the message of the book of Exodus and as we hear what God is saying to us through it. First, we want to get a handle on Egypt or Israel's situation in Egypt. It had fallen into slavery. What did that mean? It's important for us to get the historical foundation in place before we start to make any application to ourselves. But secondly, with that foundation in place, we want to see how this slavery in Egypt points to another form of slavery that binds men and women in our world today. And then thirdly and finally, we'll consider God's strategy for deliverance from slavery. First for Israel in Egypt through Moses and then for sinners today through Christ. And I want to finish tonight by seeing what our role in this is as God continues to set people free today. So that's the plan for this evening. We begin with slavery 
in Egypt. Scripture makes it clear that on this occasion, Israel was in Egypt by divine guidance. It hadn't taken a wrong turn or acted in disobedience. Centuries earlier, God had directed Jacob, who became Israel, to move his family to Egypt and to join Joseph, who was there. For it would be there, God said, in Egypt, that God would make that family into a great nation. And that would happen before he would then bring them into the land of Canaan. This was all spelled out back in Genesis 46, verse 3 and 4. This is God speaking to Jacob. And he says, I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. So that they had that promise. So it's really important to remember that Israel is in Egypt by divine command, under divine promise, and awaiting divine intervention. And in fact, the plan had been stated even earlier than it was to Jacob. You could go back as far as Genesis chapter 15, when God was making that covenant with Abraham, the father of the nation. And this is what we read in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. God's, then the Lord said to him, that is to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. I'm sure you noticed in our readings tonight just how often the writer emphasizes that Israel really did prosper in Egypt, even under conditions of slavery. Because at a certain point, things did take a nasty turn for the Israelites. A pharaoh came to the throne in Egypt who, to whom Joseph meant nothing. He either knew nothing of Joseph's special status and any obligations to his descendants, or perhaps more likely, he just refused to recognize any such obligations. And life became really tough for Israel, really tough. It started with the people being placed into forced labor. Twice we're told that the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. 
as they exploited them in the areas of construction and farming. And yet, the people continued to prosper. So Pharaoh's next tactic to control this ever-increasing Israelite population was to introduce the genocidal measure of killing the baby boys. Stage one was his instruction to the Israelite midwives to carry out a policy of murder at birth. But this failed due to the midwives' faith-filled obedience to God's word rather than to Pharaoh's. And once again, what do we read after that? We read this, Israel increased and became even more numerous. So Pharaoh's next move, stage two, was to involve the entire Egyptian population in his wicked policy of extermination. All the people were instructed to throw all Israelite baby boys into the Nile. That's the last verse of chapter 1. But I took you from chapter 1 to chapter 5. And it's actually important to understand what happens in between there. Because Moses is born. And through God's providential ordering of events, Moses is saved out of the Nile. Because he will be the man through whom God will save Israel out of Egypt. But years pass by. Years of this unbearable misery. Moses is raised in Pharaoh's own palace. But as an adult, he witnesses an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And he intervenes. And he kills the Egyptian. But events do not unfold as Moses anticipated. And he, he feels that he has to flee to the land of Midian. And he basically settles down to a life of shepherding in obscurity. But you know the story if you're familiar with those chapters between 1 and 5. At age 80. So get the significance of this. This is long after the Pharaoh of Egyptian of, of Exodus chapter 1 has passed from the scene. God sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh to demand Israel's release. What happens? It leads to a further intensification of Israel's experience of slavery to an unimaginable degree. The new Pharaoh is incensed at the suggestion of a religious holiday for Israel to go and worship the Lord. And he reacts by demanding that the Israelites maintain their quota of brick production without providing them for the necessary materials to do so. And to ensure that the message got through to the people, 
he had the Israelites' overseers beaten for failure to maintain the brick production. So that's, that's ground level. That's the historical situation. That's the experience of slavery that Israel had in Egypt. But let's move on from that base level. How does this relate to us today, other than just giving us a great story from history of how God acted on behalf of his people? And this is where we we need to think for a little moment about what Egypt represents and see how it points to a greater reality and indeed to a very modern form of slavery. And we'll be returning to this when we come to think about Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh and the plagues that came upon Egypt. But for now, it's sufficient to say this, that Egypt in Scripture serves as a picture of the world. This world system that binds men and women. And Pharaoh points to the very real but behind the scenes ruler of this present age, namely Satan. If I had to sum up the message that Pharaoh was seeking to impress and impose upon Israel by his policy of oppression, it's this. Egypt is all there is. And Egypt is all that matters. And in Egypt, the word of Pharaoh is final. It's absolute. The purpose of your existence, Israel, is to work and to eat and to sleep in service of Egypt. And tomorrow... It is to work and to eat and to sleep all over again. There's nothing beyond Egypt for you. And there's certainly no room for your God in Egypt. Egypt refuses to recognize your God. And Egypt rejects his claims over you. Forget those lies you've been told, chapter 5, verse 9. Forget those lies about your God and his plans for you. Pharaoh is your master and Egypt is your lot. When you think about it, Pharaoh's message sounds remarkably similar to that of the philosophy, the modern philosophy, of secular materialism. Egypt is all there is. This world is all there is. And don't be deceived by the apparent spirituality of ancient Egypt 
and the fact that it had literally hundreds of gods. Egypt's gods were simply personifications, deifications of the forces of nature. Whether we're talking about Amun, the supreme, the greatest of the sun gods, or Ra, the lesser sun god, or Pharaoh, son of Ra. There was no god outside of nature, separate from it and supreme over it. Egypt was a closed system. Egypt, in relationship to these forces of nature, these gods, was the sum total of reality. And it's interesting to see how the physical properties of the country played into this narrative and worldview that Egypt was a self-contained system. You see, Egypt's entire life depended on and centered around the Nile. The fertility of the land, as far as Egyptians were concerned, it didn't depend on the rains that fell from heaven. No, just every year there was the the annual inundation of the Nile. It overflowed its banks. It deposited the rich silt in the fields. It watered the fields. The Egyptian calendar was completely structured around the cycle of the Nile. And Pharaoh was held to be the godlike guardian of the Nile. But Egypt just seemed to run itself, to perpetuate itself, to be self contained, self sufficient. Can you see the parallels? with the philosophy of secular materialism today and to the very modern form of slavery that it has brought millions of people in our generation into. Listen to our materialist friends. Tell me, as human beings, where did we come from? Well, we've been randomly formed by the fundamental forces at work in the universe. Not that these forces know that they have created us or that they one day will destroy us. Tell me, why are we here? No reason. We just are. What should we live for? Just enjoy the ride as best you can. Build things. Learn an instrument. Join a team. Play. And have fun with your family. So long as you're one of the winners in this cosmic lottery. Where are we heading? Nowhere. Well, more accurately, worm food and then space dust. What a prison this world becomes with that view. 
What slavery of the human spirit created in the image of God? This world is all there is. There's no purpose or meaning or value to your life. And there's absolutely no hope. There was a form of torture that was popular in the Middle Ages. A prisoner was put into a specially designed room. And each day the walls moved in a little bit closer on the prisoner. Until they finally crushed him to death. That's the world that the modern materialist would have us live in. And what Pharaoh sought to do to Israel in Egypt, Satan has done to millions in our world today through this philosophy of materialism. And the generation coming through now, they have been marinated in materialism with devastating results. Satan has deceived them and enslaved them in a world which is utterly bleak and ultimately hopeless. But I want to finish tonight by reminding you then of what God did for Israel when Pharaoh sought to do that to Israel and Egypt. And I want it to allow, to, to point us to what he has done for us through Christ and how he wants to use us to bring this message of freedom and hope to a dying world. And I will be inviting you to do a little bit of homework for yourself because I'm not going to have the time to, to go through this at any great depth. But I want you to investigate God's strategy of deliverance, both for Israel and for ourselves. How did God go about it? So we have two columns. We're going to set these side by side because Exodus provides us a wonderful picture of the ultimate deliverance that would come through Christ. So we're going to set beside each other Israel's liberation from Egypt and sinners' deliverance in our world today. How did God go about it? Well, the first thing he did for Israel was he raised up Moses. He, he sent a deliverer who would defeat Pharaoh and deliver Israel. What did God do for us in our slavery? Well, you see it. God raised up. He sent Jesus to defeat Satan and to deliver sinners. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. But do you remember what Jesus said as he went out to the cross? Now is the time for the judgment 
of the prince of this world. There was a spiritual battle going on on the cross between God and Satan. How did God provide the evidence that Moses was his God-appointed deliverer? Well, remember the burning bush? If the people of Israel ask me, who sent me? What shall I say? What's his name? And there's that declaration. Tell, I am that I am. Tell them who I am. How else did he do it? Moses, when you go to Israel with this message of deliverance, do these signs, these miraculous signs. What has God done with Jesus? What did he come to do? You've got the references to follow up. Remember the prologue to John's gospel? No one has seen God at any time, but the one and only son who's in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. Jesus prays in John 17, the high priestly prayer, Father, I have given them your name. He's revealed God. And what did God do when this deliverer came? He surrounded him with the evidence of miraculous signs. In Egypt, largely signs of judgment, with Jesus, signs of grace. And then what happens? Well, of course, we come to the event of Passover. When the wrath of God upon Egypt, Israel is provided with protection beneath the blood of the Lamb. And we know on Good Friday, Jesus bears the wrath of God in the place of sinners. But there were two aspects to Israel's salvation, deliverance. Not only were they delivered from the wrath of God, but they also were delivered from the power of Pharaoh. And the Red Sea follows the Passover. And they're taken through. And Pharaoh's power over them is finished. But what about Easter Sunday? Jesus' resurrection unleashes the power of God to transform the lives of sinners and break the dominion of Satan and sin over us. And we can continue the parallels, how God delivers his people. We're baptized into Moses, baptized into Christ. And so they set off on the journey to freedom. And how are they sustained? God gives them bread from heaven. He feeds them. What does he do with believers today? How does he sustain us as we make our way through this wilderness? Christ is the living bread. He brings them out of Israel, not so they could do their own thing, but so they could live in relationship with him, one of obedience, and he gives them his law. Christ gives his spirit so that we can obey his law now that we've been set free. Freedom is obeying God, not doing our own thing. And finally, God travels with Israel. He says, make me a tent so that I can live in your midst and journey with you as you make your way to your inheritance. What does Jesus say in the upper room? 
I'm going away, but I'm going to send the Comforter. And if anyone loves me and obeys my commandments, my Father and I will come and we will live in their heart by the Spirit. Do you see the parallels between the deliverance from slavery in Egypt through Moses and then the ultimate deliverance from Satan and sin through Christ the Deliverer. These are, you're getting that handout, by the way. But I want to just finish with this. Where do we fit into this tonight, now? Well, our part in this ongoing deliverance. We are sent by Jesus into the world. Moses was sent. Jesus was sent. You and I are sent. Remember what Jesus said? As you sent me into the world, Father, so I send them. What do we do? We declare God's name. We share who he is, the truth about him. That's what Jesus said. I have given them your name. They're now going to go and reveal my name. This revelation of who God is in this hopeless world falls to us today. And we'll not be alone in that. But we proclaim the crucified and risen Savior and the offer of new life in him. We are sustained by feeding on Jesus. Remember what Jesus said, as well as saying he was the living bread, he said, I'm the true vine. Abide in me. You'll find your sustenance for this task in me. And God is at work in us. Paul says to the Philippians, you've obeyed not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good purpose. And we are God's temple, displaying God's glory in our world. Israel was delivered from its very physical slavery, but with a spiritual message. There's no hope for you. Don't listen to those lies about your God having plans for you, able to deliver you and bring you into a new life. Don't listen. And we come to Jesus Christ and we see that fulfilled at a greater level again when God sends the deliverer from the true slavery of sin and all its consequences. And he performs the work that only he could do. And then we come to ourselves. And we have a part to play in people today being set free. What a message to give to someone who thinks they're here by chance. They don't ultimately matter. There's no real purpose to life. And there's absolutely no hope after the grave. We can show them the Savior God who, offered, who deals with the problem of sin who defeats our arch enemy, the devil himself, and all his deceptions, and offers us a life and fellowship with him.
may the book of Exodus and its portrayal of salvation for Israel lead us to a greater appreciation of ultimate salvation that we experience today. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.